Well, happy Lord's Day. It is good to be together face to face before our great God and King once more. We're going to turn our attention today to 1 Kings in chapter 17 and hang our hats there again. We are in the third portion of your outline there. We've gone through it by looking at it in terms of three paragraphs that are telling one big idea. You see those first seven verses sort of focused on God's control of the natural order. As he sent Elijah to proclaim to King Ahab that a drought would come upon the land, a famine, and then God fed him with ravens. So God commands the rains to stop and the ravens to feed his prophet Elijah. Last week, we considered how God commanded a widow, a Gentile widow, in the land of Zarephath to feed Elijah, even though she had nothing. But when she believed the prophet's words, she inherited the promise of God. The jar and the jug did not run out. And she and Elijah and her son were able to eat for many days. And this week, we come... And we find something unexpected. The widow's son dies. And Elijah raises him from the dead. These three paragraphs have three miracles wrapped up in them. And when we put them all together, we see the main point of the author here. Which is to show that Yahweh, the God of Jacob, is the only true God. There is no other besides him. Remember how we come to this story. The kingdom of Israel is no longer a united monarchy. It has been split apart because of Solomon's penchant for gold, guns, and girls. God's judgment has come upon Israel, and the united monarchy is now a divided monarchy such that you have a sort of counterfeit kingdom in the north, which was initially established by Jeroboam, and the kingdom in the south, where there's Judah, where the true worship of the Lord is continually offered at the temple in Jerusalem. And what we find as we move through kings is that both kingdoms are actually pretty bad. And the northern kingdom is bad enough that They get sent into exile first. But Judah, well, she follows along quickly. At this point in the story, we come to the most awful of kings in the north, and King Ahab. Ahab walks in the way of Jeroboam, who you remember when he led the people out from Rehoboam's oppression to establish the northern kingdom, set up for the people to worship not one, but two golden calves. You know, he went full Aaron on them and said, Behold, your God who brought you out of Egypt. He put one golden calf in Bethel and the other in Dan so that the people could worship according to their convenience, according to, well, sort of however they wanted. Remember, Jeroboam makes his custom version of religion, so that the people don't have to worry about what God has said, but rather they can worship him in the way that they want. This is displeasing to God, and this is the pattern that plays out over and over again in the northern kingdom. But when we get to Ahab, we discover he's not interested in simply continuing business as usual, sort of assimilating and um, synchronizing 
the religious ideas of the pagan Canaanites together with Judaism. He wants to actually replace Yahweh. And he wants to replace him with Baal, also known as Baal, a.k.a. Baal. You'll probably hear me say all three. You know, Google says it's Baal, Hebrew scholars say Baal, and then others say Baal. So I don't, I don't know, I'm just going to, you know, go Baal, well, you'll hear him. That same guy I'm talking about all the time, okay? But Ahab wants to replace Yahweh with Baal. And you can see this at the end of chapter 16. He marries Jezebel, a zealous Baal worshiper who wants to kill the prophets of God. And she comes from the kingdom of the Sidonians, and her father is named Ethbaal. We also see that he, as a sort of counterfeit Solomon, builds a temple. Remember, Solomon builds the temple to Yahweh. It is the zenith of the United Monarchy. There is worship in the courts. There's barbecue going on. There's singing and dancing, rejoicing before the Lord. And here we find Ahab building a temple not to Yahweh or in obedience to God's word, but to Baal. And so we see the flip side of Solomon, the high point of the kingdom and now a very low point of the northern kingdom. He wants to replace Yahweh with Baal. And it's on to this stage that the great prophet Elijah steps. We talked about it in terms of, a, uh, of wrestling, though many of you, I'm sure, don't watch sort of professional wrestling anymore. He said it would be as if you know, Hulk Hogan or Jake the Snake or whomever, whatever, pick your wrestling heel, uh, were in the ring talking trash, and then what always happens in these very dramatized wrestling matches as the lights go out and then the entrance music starts to play. You know, when I was a kid, it was uh, The Rock or, or Stone Cold Steve Austin come running out to, you know, to the rescue to conquer the villain. So the music, music kind of plays in verse 1 of chapter 17, you know. Dun-dun, dun-dun, dun-dun. And here's Elijah. God's prophet shows up with God's word in his mouth to tell Ahab that God's covenant curses are coming on the people. And Baal, the Canaanite fertility god, who is seen as the god of life, seen as the god who brings life to the land by bringing water to it, not only life to the land, but life to the womb. This one who thinks he is God of life, well, he will be proven to be false, to be no God at all. God is going to shut off Baal's water, and it will not rain again except by Elijah's word. And it is God's word that is central in this chapter. It moves everything along. And that's your main idea once more again this morning, as it has been the past couple weeks, that the world works according to the word of the Lord. Life and death are in his hands. And so, if you will, I'm going to read the whole chapter this morning, and then we'll double back into verses 17 through 24. But just listen for the word, word. Verse 1, 1 Kings chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by 
my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in, prepare it for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, uh, make a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, But what have you against me, O man of God? You come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, you have brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would 
tune our hearts and our ears to hear your voice this morning. We pray that you would overcome not only those things which threaten to distract us from hearing your word, but that you would overcome our sinfulness, our hardened hearts. It is all too easy for us to hear your word and to stiffen our necks, to turn and to walk our own way. We pray that you would help us to hear by your Holy Spirit this morning. We recognize that spiritual things are only understood spiritually. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would be present among us this morning. You would help us to hear your voice. That you would not remove your word from us in judgment. Speak, Lord. Your people listen. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The newly converted widow of Zarephath comes to her first test of faith. She has believed the word of God's prophet and she has enjoyed the promise of God, daily finding the jar not spent and the jug not empty, daily making bread for her son, her household, and Elijah the prophet. And yet, she soon learns that the good times don't keep rolling this side of heaven. That the difficulty swirling around her and it was difficult, would find its way even into her own life. God would bring death to her house. And so she must learn that trusting God is not a means by which we escape from the difficulties of life, but it is the way that we face the difficulties of life. Any delusions she had about now I follow the God of Israel and therefore my life will be easy are immediately dispelled by this tragic twist of fate. Friends, it is important for us to recognize that though we have been made right with God and though we have eternal life in us right now, that this life will take us to and through suffering. Suffering precedes glory. We will encounter difficulty. But the good news for us and for this widow is twofold. One, God is sovereign. Nothing comes to us without passing through his good and mighty hand. And two, our God has promised to raise us, his people, up from the dead. Do you believe that? That's what this widow is going to need to learn. That God and his word control the world. When you believe this, friends, it makes you secure and firm, immovable, because you know that God is with you. When you understand the truth that God is the one who rules the world, 
it will enable you to greet death and disease and difficulties with a resolute smile on your face, with a cheerful defiance that speaks a better word than the circumstances swirling around you. When you come to those things that might shake others, you can remember that you have built your house on Christ, the solid rock. And though the winds and the waves crash against you, you can stand firm, knowing that he holds you up. Brothers and sisters, death will come for us all. And when it does, if we are in Christ, we can greet him as an enemy soon to be destroyed and as one who has been reduced to the status of a doorman who simply opens our way into the presence of our loving Father. That's what this widow is going to learn this morning. She is in her grief. After this, verse 17, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. In her grief, she is grasping for explanations of why did this happen to me? And she gets a few things right. Immediately, she says, what's happened here is my son has died because of my sins. Now, I think we are quick in our culture to dismiss the connection between sin and death. This is a twofold thing. These two things go together, so you need to stay with me. She's not wrong. It could possibly be that part of the reason why her son is dead is a connection to her sins. I mean, I know we want to go uh, Robin Williams with people and goodwill hunting really quick. Anytime something bad happens, uh, we want to say to whoever is struggling and in difficulty, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Y'all have seen that one, right? He says it's not your fault like a hundred times and you know, like cries and there's hugging going on. Is it Matt Damon that's doing the crying? I, I can't remember. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that sometimes it is our fault. And that sin comes to us as God's punishment. David loses a child because of his sin. The original readers of this text were in exile because of their sin. There's no water in the land in this chapter because of the people's sin. Sometimes when difficulties come to us, it's because of our sin. Friends, we must take sin seriously. And it is a wise thing when difficulties come to you to evaluate your heart and to say, is there sin in me that needs repented of? On the other hand, we can't know when difficulties come to us because of our sins. David gets a prophet. The post-exilic people get this book, and they were familiar with the covenants. But for us, 
We, we don't have God saying to us, you committed sin X, and therefore I have brought sin or consequence for sin Y into your life. Sometimes sin comes to us, sin punishment comes to us because of our sins. And sometimes difficulty comes to us because difficulty comes even on the righteous. We know this. Job is a righteous man who suffers. Elizabeth is barren in the New Testament until she becomes pregnant with John the Baptist, and she's called a righteous woman. Jesus himself is the ultimate righteous sufferer. He dies for our sins, though he had done nothing wrong. And so sometimes when suffering comes, it can be because of our sin. And sometimes when suffering comes, it just comes because it's by God's design. How are we to respond? We are to respond by taking sin seriously and repenting of it and by enduring all suffering as if it was God's discipline knowing that he is using all of those circumstances to form us and shape us more and more into the image of Christ until he takes us home to be in the presence of Christ. This is what Jesus teaches in Luke 13 when the tower falls in Siloam and kills a bunch of people. The discussion is, have these people sinned in such a way that God threw this tower down on top of them? And Jesus says, you all are asking the wrong question. He says, when the difficulty comes, the question's not, what did they do to deserve this? The question is, is there sin in my life that I need to repent of? Remember, Jesus' words to them are, repent or you likewise will perish. In difficulties, in sufferings, we should always be looking for sins that we need to repent of and we should always be following the instruction that comes to us in Hebrews from our scripture reading this morning. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. We can trust God when our circumstances are not what we would choose. We can remember that the whole world works according to the word of the Lord. And that life and death are in his hands. So our widow is not wrong to suggest that perhaps this Death has come into her life as a result of her sins. I think later we see that that could be a purpose, but I think the primary purpose is so that God can demonstrate his glory. Still, she gets something else right here, and that's that sin deserves the anger and judgment of God. Though she expresses that in sort of a funny way. She says to Elijah, Look, I was good here in this Gentile land in Ballstown, I was hiding away, and God had no idea about my sin. But then you showed up. And yeah, we ate for a while. You know, I was willing to share my last hot pocket with you, and so now we, we have bread every day. But now my son is dead. And you know why, Elijah? It's because you showed up, and when you showed up, you bear the presence and word of God. God all of a sudden noticed me and my sins. And I understand my sins deserve his anger and judgment. And so now my son is dead. On the one hand, she's right. (laughs) Sin deserves the anger and judgment of God. But on the other hand, she's misinterpreted events. It's so easy for us 
in the midst of hardship, to allow that hardship to eclipse God's grace to us. God has come to this widow, of all people, with his prophet, and provided for her day after day after day. Her sin was not a hurdle that God could not overcome. Just as she should take her sin seriously, she should take the grace of God seriously. The suffering that she was enduring through the loss of her son did not abrogate God's grace to her. God never stops being kind to his people, even when we are enduring suffering. Take your sin seriously, yes, church, but also take the grace of God seriously. Know and trust that your father is after your good. She blames Elijah for exposing her sin to God. Sometimes my younger kids will do weird things. Uh, They'll wrap blankets around their heads and lie in the middle of the living room floor, or they'll get behind curtains in my living room, and their feet exposed, and they will say, Daddy, come find me. You know, I'll play along because it's more fun that way. Where, where are you? Sometimes my older boys, well, they'll, they'll jump in because they think I'm missing something, right? He's behind the curtain. He's on the floor. He's got a Blanket around his head. Oh. Little ones get mad. How could you tell him where I was? This is what's going on in this chapter a little bit. God knows exactly where the widow is all the time. He's not searching for her. He knows exactly what her sins are when he sends Elijah to her initially. And yet he pursues her because he loves her. And this difficulty comes into her life, maybe because of her sins a little bit, I don't know, but definitely because it is the purpose of God to demonstrate his superiority, not only over Baal, Canaanite god of life and fertility, but also over Mot, the Canaanite god of death. We'll come to him later. But right now we need to recognize that the Lord, this is another thing she recognizes, is that the Lord takes away life. So she's, she's, she's got a lot of stuff going right for her. She sees the significance of sin. She understands that it deserves the anger and judgment of God. And she understands that the Lord our God is God over death. Did you see that? She attributes her son's death not to his illness, but to God. And Elijah agrees with her. Look at verse 18 of chapter 17. What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And then down in verse 20, he says, Elijah praying to God, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son. For some unknown reason to me, Christians have a hard time recognizing or acknowledging that God is the one who takes life. 
But that is the unanimous testimony over and over and over again throughout the Bible. God gives life and breath and everything. He gives and takes away. He is the one who curses sin with death. In Adam, all die because it's the will of the Lord. In Genesis, we see him send the flood of judgment onto humanity. He takes life in the Passover in Exodus. The Bible credits God for the victories of the conquest when they take the Holy Land. When there are thousands of Assyrians assembled outside of Hezekiah's gates and Hezekiah cries out to the Lord for deliverance, it's the angel of the Lord who kills a hundred plus thousand in a night. And that's to make no mention of all the individuals that God is said to kill in Scripture. He kills Ur and Saul and Nabal and Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira. God is Lord over life and death. He gives life and breath and everything. 1 Samuel 2.6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Deuteronomy 32.39, God speaking, See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And who can forget Job's words? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Our passage illustrates this truth. God has given life and breath and everything to this widow and her son. He has provided their daily food and kept them alive to this point in the midst of famine. And now he takes away the life of her son. The whole world works according to the word of the Lord. Life and death are in his hands. And again, Brothers and sisters, this is an encouragement to us. This is a comfort for a lot of reasons. But one of them is, if God is not in control of life and death, that means someone else has to be. Or worse, that things that happen to you just sort of happen on accident, no purpose in them. But knowing that God is in control, and that through faith in Christ, you can call him Father? That means everything that happens to you happens for you. Before you're good. You might not have any way of piecing together how that works. But you can trust what God has said. You can take him at his word. This is a huge comfort. And I don't, I don't want to say that to you as somebody who has never endured suffering. This has been a, a comfort to me many times in life. I think particularly of my wife, who it was a comfort to this past summer. Many of you can recall that her father went missing for over a week and then was found dead. And in that season, where she found comfort was in the sovereignty of God. Remember, she said something to me something of the effect of, I don't know where my dad is. I don't know why he's missing. But God knows. He knows exactly where he is. And when he passed away, 
Remember saying, God knew, and God took him home. It's God's right, and God is good. I don't know how I would deal with this if I thought it was just accident or chance or that the devil was in control. Made me think of Psalm 139 in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Read that line again. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What a great comfort. God has numbered not only the hairs on our heads, but he has written our days in his book. God is captain of souls. God is master of destinies. We die right on time and not a moment before. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for you and for me, and then we will die on his time. This is comforting. And I think particularly to us, church, in this season of sorrow we have walked through in 2023, we have mourned the loss of a number of our brothers and sisters. Those losses were according to God's design. Sisters Hilda and Randy died right on time, according to the will of God. Brothers John and Dale died right on time, according to the will of God. You and I will die right on time according to the will of God. We are in good hands. We can trust the Father to hold us fast through this life, through death, and unto resurrection. Lord takes away life and the Lord gives life. Look with me at verse 20. And he, that's Elijah, cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, you have brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived Elijah, distraught and disturbed by this turn of events, takes the boy into his bedroom, lies him down on his own bed, and prays over top of him, almost as if to say, Lord, uh, let the life come into this boy. Like I have life, like my body is in motion. Put motion and life back into this boy. Raise him up again. And notice, Elijah does not 
utilize some razzle-dazzle, abracadabra sort of power. He doesn't roll in, his chest puffed out, and say, I have the gift of healing. Raise up, young man. No. What does he do? And this is amazing. Maybe it doesn't seem amazing to you, but it's amazing. He prays. Elijah's best course of action in the face of death is to take advantage of that ordinary means of grace. Prayer is not all that ordinary, is it? He prays. Brothers and sisters, prayer is one of God's appointed means of grace for life and for difficulty. Our God is the God of life and death. He paints the skies. He grows the grass. He feeds the animals. He knits babies together in the womb. He does all of it all at once. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. We can pray to him. And yet we think, I got this. No need to pray. Oh, what needless pains we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Do you pray, brothers? Elijah prays, and God listens. It is interesting, throughout this chapter you see, God speaks, Elijah obeys. God speaks, the widow obeys. And now we come here, and Elijah prays, and God listens. God hears prayer. God raises the dead in Mott country. I told you we'd come back to Mott. Mott is another Canaanite deity, god of death, and it was said that he would wrestle with Baal, 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 uh, occasionally, and that for a, a time, Baal would submit to him and be drugged down to Sheol. This is how they explained the dry seasons. It's that Mott would be reigning over Baal. But then eventually, you know, when the rainy season came, Baal would be free from Mott. You see what, what God has done? He said, I've dried up all the rain and I've withheld all the dew. I've turned off Baal's utilities to show you he is powerless. And now here in Baal's land, in Mott's land, here is a dead man and I am going to raise him up. Why? Because Baal is not the Lord of life. Mott is not the Lord of death. I am. God purposed the death and resuscitation of this child for his glory. For purposes I doubt this widow saw, but we now see and rejoice over. God is always at work, even if you can't see it. This is the first time in the Bible that someone is raised from the dead. Elisha will repeat the feat, but after that, it won't be until the time of Jesus Christ's first advent that someone is raised from the dead. We have a very similar story in Luke chapter 7. But it is interesting. Jesus will raise a widow's son 
not with prayer, but with his word. Because unlike Elijah, who bears the presence and word of God, Jesus is the presence and word of God. He doesn't pray, he commands. Listen, Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. The bears stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God. Jesus is the master of life and death. In fact, he went into death so that those who trust in him don't have to die eternally. Jesus took the infinite wrath of God towards his people, towards sinners on the cross. He crossed over. This is really interesting in Kings. Yahweh goes out of the promised land and into the land of Baal to provide for this window, widow. And then he crosses over from life to death by raising up the widow's son. And this is precisely what God does in the Lord Jesus. God the Son takes on flesh, becoming a man like us, and comes to earth crosses into the realm of the prince of the power of the air. And he doesn't stop there. He lives a perfect life, and then he dies a substitutionary death and crosses from the living to the dead for us. Praise God, he raises from the dead, proving his person and his power, his victory over death. Praise God, he gives to those who repent of sin and trust in him, his Holy Spirit, so that their lives are joined to him. His death counts as their death. And his life counts as our life. The son who was crucified is king. The son who was dead lives. Elijah's going to say to the widow here in a second, see, your son lives. Oh, friends, see the son lives. It will change everything for you. See him broken and bleeding on the tree for you. See his body laid in the tomb of another. See the stone rolled away. 
See the angels singing, the women running. See the disciples gasping. See his grave clothes folded up. See him high and lifted up. See the holes in his hands and in his side. And bow down with Thomas and say, My Lord and my God, see the Son lives. Because not only did he die for you, sister Christian, he lives for you. He is raised from the dead, never to return again. These widows' sons who are raised, they died again. Jesus Christ does not die. Those who trust in Christ will be raised and we will not die. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. The son lives. What a picture of our future. We will live. We will embrace lost loved ones. If we trust in Christ, we will enjoy our Father's house and all the foods and wines there. Our future is glorious. We know what's before us long term. We have no idea what's before us short term. But if we have received Jesus Christ, well then, let the storms come. Let pestilence come. Let sickness come. Let fibromyalgia come. Let cancer come. Let COVID come. Let death come. For we are sure of life beyond the grave. There is a resurrection coming. And there is nothing wrong with us that a good resurrection won't fix. That's not the point of this passage, though. I want to encourage you with that, but that's not the main point. We come to the main point here in verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The widow knows that God's word is true. That the whole world works according to the word of the Lord. That life and death are in his hands. This is a huge surprise. Chapter 16 ends with the king of Israel on his throne, worshiping a false god. Chapter 17 begins with God's prophet coming to the alleged king of God's people. He speaks to Ahab. Ahab rejects his word. He will not listen to the word of the Lord. God, in judgment, takes his word away from Israel and he takes it into a Gentile land 
to a Gentile widow. And how does she respond to the word of the Lord? She listens. She believes. You see that startling contrast? Friends, the world works according to the word of the Lord. Life and death are in his hands. And the question before you is, will you respond to God's word like Ahab? Or like this widow? The question before us, will we listen to the word of the Lord? Will we believe and obey it? We believe the promises of God and have resurrection to eternal life in our futures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess that we are sinners, that we are imperfect, that we need your grace now just as much as ever. We thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive our sins when we come before you in confession because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us at the place of the skull long ago. We thank you that we can enjoy this forgiveness together as we gather around your holy table and celebrate the Lord's Supper, which reminds us of Christ's body broken for us, of his blood shed for us. Lord, we thank you that we are forgiven, not forsaken. We thank you that your grace overcomes our sins. Thank you for setting your love on us. Help us to love you back by living lives of holy obedience to your holy word for your glory. We pray these things by your Holy Spirit, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.